All right, good morning, everyone. Let's go ahead and take our seats. see you all here this morning. And um, just by way of orientation here, we have three different handouts. Um, our paper usage is increasing by the week. Um, so we have our review handout. And this is we're going to be reviewing questions one through 10. Uh, this morning, we are going to be looking at 11 and 12. So 11 and 12, and hopefully we can get all the way through 12, but we may, uh, depending on how it goes and time, we may uh, push that to the next time as well. And then the third handout is uh, God and his decrees, the word search here. I imagine that's probably more interesting for the younger folk, but if the older folk would like to uh, have that as well, uh, you're more than welcome to. So God and his decrees. All right, very good. Well, let me open this up with a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time again. Wonderful Lord's Day. Come and be together to study your word, uh, to consider the wonders that you have revealed to us therein. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would stir up our thoughts and our minds, that you would give us clarity, that uh, we would truly enjoy and take joy in you and what you have revealed to us about yourself and about your decrees. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, very good. Well, let's take out our review handout. Let's take out our review handout. And as has been our practice thus far, we're going to uh, recite the first 10 questions. And you'll see 8 through 10, or 8, 9, and 10 on the back side of the second page. All right, what is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. How doth it appear that there is a God? The very light of nature in man and the works of God declare plainly that there is a God, but his word and spirit only do sufficiently and effectually reveal him unto men for their salvation. What is the Word of God? The Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the Word of God, the only rule of faith and obedience. How doth it appear that the Scriptures are the Word of God? The Scriptures manifest themselves to be the Word of God by their majesty and purity, by the consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God by their light and power to convince and convert sinners, to comfort and build up believers unto salvation. But the Spirit of God, bearing witness by and with the Scriptures in the heart of man, is alone able fully to persuade it that they are the very Word of God. What do the Scriptures principally teach? The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God 
and what duty God requires of man. What do the scriptures make known of God? The scriptures make known what God is, the persons in the Godhead, his decrees, and the execution of his decrees. What is God? God is a spirit, in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Are there more gods than one? There is but one only, the living and true God. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There be three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one true eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. What are the personal properties of the three persons in the Godhead? It is proper to the Father to beget the Son, and to the Son to be begotten of the Father, and to the Holy Ghost to proceed from the Father and the Son from all eternity. Amen. Praise the Lord for these wonderful truths that he reveals to us in his word. All right, very good. So, by the way, for those of you who've just come in or come in recently, before or after handouts have been passed around, we do have handouts on this back little table here uh, in this room here. You're more than welcome to grab them and to follow along and participate in the lesson here today. Uh, but as I said at the beginning, we're going to now move into question 11 and 12. And so as you follow the flow here, even as we've seen in the review that we've just done in the first 10 questions, where were we left in question 10? We were left considering the personal properties of the three persons in the Godhead, right? That the Father begets the Son, the Son is begotten of the Father, and the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father and the Son from all eternity, so as we consider those personal properties, as we consider who God is and how he has revealed himself to us, as we move into question 11, this is kind of the, the last question in the larger catechism regarding the doctrine of God proper um, and what is true about him and uh, his being ontologically. Um, also, what is true in regards to the persons in the Godhead and their equality uh, with each other. And so question 11 here really uh, points out, okay, so many may understand or many may say, yes, I understand that the Father is God. But understanding, as we just looked at in 10, the Son is begotten of the Father, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, how do we understand that all three are equal in the Godhead? Okay. And so we see the answer to that there. Let's, let's read the answer to question 11 together. The question, how doth it appear that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God equal with the Father? 
The scriptures manifest that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God, equal with the Father, ascribing unto them such names, attributes, works, and worship as are proper to God only. All right, very good. So I've taken each of these, and we're going to look at each of these qualities and characteristics um, separately with the associated proof texts. Okay, and uh, let's start off here with names. Okay, so we're going to look at the names, we're going to look at the attributes, and then thirdly, we're going to consider the works, and I guess fourthly, also then the worship. So names, attributes, works, and worship. Okay, so let's look at the divine names ascribed to the Son. And let's look at Isaiah chapter 6, verses 3 through 8 first. And I'll grab that. If somebody else could grab John 12, 37 through 41, and 1 John 5, 20. So in Isaiah Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 3, this is what we read. And actually, let's begin, let's take it back to verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell In the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. So we see wonderful names of God ascribed here. What about John 20? Excuse me, John 12. Who has that? John 12, 37 through 41. Go for it. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. Which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Therefore, they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes. Lift their eyes, 
they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should hear them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Very good. So we see the name of Lord described here, don't we? What about 1 John 5.20? 1 John 5.20. Yeah. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us the understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, and his Son, Jesus Christ, is there the true God in his own life. Right. So we see divine name, Son of God, used. Uh, Son of God is uh, a very well and, and widely used name for Christ, uh, used many places in the scriptures. Um, but here we see that he is, uh, that that name is also not only tied to him, but is also describing him um, and, and ascribing him uh, divinity, right? And pointing us to the fact that he is God. He is true. He is God. Very good. What do we know about the names that are ascribed to the Holy Spirit? Let's, if you have your finger back in uh, Isaiah, that was a proof text there as well for the Spirit um, in Isaiah 6. But let's look at the book of Acts. Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28. We see here again in this passage in Acts 28, you can back up even to 23, uh, verse 23 there. Uh, we see uh, again a reference back to Isaiah, like we've heard in other passages this morning. <coughs> in verse 23, so when they had appointed him a day, many came to him in his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading con them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets, from morning until evening. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand. And seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing. And their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Lest they should understand with their hearts and turn. So that I should heal them. Therefore, verse 28. Let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. And they will hear it. And when they had said these words, the Jews departed and had great dispute among themselves. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. And there ends the book of Acts. So what do we see here in this passage that helps us to understand uh, and see divine names ascribed to the Holy Spirit. 
Where do we see that here? Look at verse 25 in particular. Right? And notice this is there is very much of a Trinitarian focus here. Right? If you back up into the context of 25, um, what were they persuading them about? They were persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. That's a long conversation. Right? That's a long time to discuss and to present Christ. Um, and, I mean, undoubtedly, they could spend much more time than that, right? But they did so from the law of Moses and the prophets from morning until evening. But then look at 25. They didn't agree among themselves. They departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through, the, through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through the prophet Isaiah. That is an description of divinity. Right? He is God. God is the one who calls the prophets, who called the prophets, and, and who spoke through the prophets, right? And gave them the exact word to give. Word by word, exactly what he desired to be declared. And the Holy Spirit is the one who spoke. Let's turn to Acts, same book, but towards the beginning of the book, uh, Acts chapter 5. Go ahead, you can begin back, uh, read, go ahead and read 1 through 5, uh, excuse me, 1 through 4. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira and his wife sold possession, and kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Mm. So how do you see the divinity of the Spirit put forth and connected here? There are really kind of two pieces in, the, in this passage, right? What two pieces do you see? How do you make the connection? Going to the Holy Spirit and going to God. Right. Exactly. Right. Yep. Verse 3, right? Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. And then at the end of verse 4, you have not lied to men, but to God. Right? So, again, the Holy Spirit is God. He has given and ascribed the names of God. We also see divine attributes. The Westminster divines help us to understand and summarize. Divine attributes ascribed to the Son. If you go to the Gospel of John... I'll grab uh, one one. Can somebody grab John uh, two twenty four and twenty five? And then somebody else grab Isaiah nine six. If 
you see here a pattern, the Apostle John and the prophet Isaiah have a lot to say about Christ and about the persons of the Godhead and their divinity. Okay, John 1.1. Well-known verse. But a very important verse regarding divine attributes being ascribed to Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, in the beginning was the Word. Okay. Um, the Word, we know, is Jesus. Right. The Word is Jesus. And how do we know that that is true? Well, there's another epistle, and even John helps us with that. If you go to 1 John, if you go to 1 John, the very beginning of his epistle there in verse 1 of chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. See the connection here, Christ is the Word made manifest. Right? We also see that. Uh, I, wanted, I wanted to point that out to you just to expand some of your understanding regarding John's writings and declaration of Christ as the Word and as the Son of God. But if you go back to John chapter 1 in the Gospel of John. In that very first chapter, there's more uh, joyful things to glean and to see from that, right? So John goes on after those first few verses in chapter 1 talking about Christ, talking about his work in creation, talking about him being manifest in the flesh. Right? John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John goes on in 15, John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for, for He was before me. And of His Fullness we have all received in grace for grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So Jesus is God. I've, I've said this before when we were talking about uh, God and his being, uh, when we were talking about the Trinity. Uh, and the, the persons in the Godhead, right? We were talking about the apologetic defense, especially against Jehovah's Witnesses 
and others who would say that Jesus isn't God. John 1.1, especially in the Greek with that definite article, right, is a slam dunk argument to say that Jesus is God. Jesus is the God. Jesus is God. Um, so, we see divine attributes ascribed to him there in that passage. John chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. Who has that? Amen. Oh, that's great. Who has John chapter 2, 24 and 25? Go for it. But he did on his, his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Right. How could Jesus know? All that was in man, unless he be God. Um, that is the, the attribute and the ascription there. All right, very good. Let's look at divine attributes ascribed to the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Again, the, the focus of this study... <laughs> is to, to teach us, to show us, to, to reinforce and encourage us, to give us great joy that the Son and the Holy Spirit are truly equal with the Father. They are God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Does somebody have that? Okay. Good <coughs> things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit teaches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows the person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Right. So how do these verses teach us about the Spirit being God? What does Paul say here that really presses that home. Max, you got any ideas? You got any thoughts? Gabe, how about you, brother? I'll give you a hint. It starts in the second in the second half of verse ten. Can you see it? Well, who else can search all things, even the depths of God, except for God himself? Right? Think about it. What is true in his ontology? What is true in his being? He is infinite and eternal. No one can search his depths and explore his depths and know his depths Besides himself. Right? So it is truly the Spirit of God, being God, who can do that. 
right? And, this is, and that's Paul's argument, right? He's saying in Levin, this is true. He can search the depths of God, the deep things of God. For, verse 11, what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God for that very reason, right? So that's a wonderful truth for us to consider. Uh, the deep, the unfathomable, the unsearchable things of God are searched and known by God himself, even the Spirit. <clears throat> All right, so let's look at the works, then, of the Son and the Spirit briefly. Uh, back to John chapter 1 and then Colossians 1. Can somebody grab Colossians 1.16, please? That's a that's an awesome verse, and that's an awesome yeah. The whole section, the whole passage is awesome, isn't it? Who created Genesis one one? Who created Stephen? Do you know the answer to that question? Who created all things? Right, God created, right? And Jesus is uh, the one who created, right? We see that in John 1, too, right? John 1, verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Right? Christ was intricately and fully involved in creation. He is God. The divine works ascribed to the Spirit Again, I made reference to it already, kind of pointed to the cat in the bag there. Genesis 1 and verse 2. Let's look at that specifically regarding the Spirit. In the beginning, verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There is the work of the Spirit. Do you remember uh, when God, uh, before God creates man, what does he say? He says, let us create him in our image, right? Um, creation is the work of the triune God. And we see that that is true for all three persons. Pastor, about the derailed conversation, but what, what do you say to the, uh, the modalists? That that was a different spirit. I would. Say, my answer they is. They say like, uh, you know, the right. 
Right. I would say I would say one, even as we've been looking in the earlier parts of this study and the names attributed, the divine attributes and the divine names attributed to the spirit. Right. Wherever the spirit of God is referenced and that phrase is used, it is always in reference to the Holy Spirit, let alone even in the context of this where God begins in verse one in the beginning, God. Right. And so the context of who is the one who is creating is God. The third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. As a part of this beginning aspect of creation, right? um, before day one, here was the Spirit of God present um, as God would then begin his work of creation. So yeah, I would reference, I would I would cross-reference and show the connections and the, and the, the, the singular uh, message and reference that wherever the Spirit of God is referenced is always referring to the third person of the Trinity. Alright, so let's look at the final piece here in this question and that is divine worship. Okay, divine worship. Let's look at Matthew chapter 28. This is the Great Commission. And also, if somebody could grab 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Let's back up to 16 as we read the whole portion there of the Great Commission. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, what did they do? They worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore... And make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So what did the disciples do when they saw him? They worshipped. Right? They worshipped. And as we know, worship is only and rightly reserved for God alone. Second Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. Who has that? Go for it. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. So this is the divine benediction, right? This is the one that you hear me pronounce most Lord's days. Um, so we see here the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, this, uh, this is the Trinitarian benediction, and the communion of the Holy Spirit, or the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, right? Be with you all. Amen. So we see again that the Holy Spirit is God, and he is to be worshipped as is the Father and the Son.
Very good. Any, any thoughts about the Son and the Holy Spirit being equal with the Father? Any questions that you may have about that? goes back to the reality, right, that we see Christ through all of Scripture, right? And we see uh, Christ, remember the, the reference passage that we looked at earlier, that uh, he went through the law of Moses and the prophets and showed them Jesus, right? Um, yes, I think Stephanie? Um, yeah, I thought, I was asked if you could help us Right, right. So, yeah, like <clears throat> like we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, it's um, really that word begotten. It's the Greek word monogenes, right, which um, which I know clears everything up for you. I'll go ahead and pray now. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you get that, Annabelle? You, you got it? You're good? Um, <laughs> No, but mono means only, and genes is begotten, right? The, the idea is coming forth from, right? We know from, uh, from the other scriptures that we've studied, we, and even the, the catechism questions in the larger catechism here that point to that they are the same substance, equal in power and glory. Um, we, we also, I think, it's helpful to understand begottenness in regards to generation, eternal generation, I shared a uh, an article. I can I can print it or whatnot. You can take a look at it too if it'd be helpful for further reading um, on the doctrine of eternal generation. Right, that's what the catechism question points to in the personal properties that it's, it's proper for the Father to beget, the Son to be begotten, and the Spirit to proceed from the Father and the Son from all eternity. It is not to be confused with the errant doctrine of the eternal subordination of the Son, which I can talk about more offline. Um, but, uh, um, but when we're considering eternal generation, what is the point here? The point is that if you want to, I think it's helpful, to, if you want to kind of boil it down to the brass tacks and understanding why, how, and why God taught us and reveals to us uh, that the Father begets and the Son is begotten. It's really to provide that distinction. Um, there was never a time when Jesus was not. Right? He always has been. He's eternally God. Um, but to provide the distinction 
between the Father and the Son. Right? That we would better understand uh, by way of, of word and, and illustration through begottenness um, the distinction between the Father and the Son. It also uh, points to uh, you know, the, the relational aspects that are also revealed to in the relationship between the person of the Father and the Son that are revealed to us in the Gospels and, and in uh, Pauline epistles and others. Um, so uh, I don't know if that's helpful, but um, yes, the, you know, for example, again, the Jehovah's Witnesses would say that, well, he was the firstborn of creation, so therefore he must be the first created being. No, that's not what is being said there. And it is not appropriate just to take the begotten or begetting language that is typically used with other creatures, right? A horse begets a horse, a cow begets a cow, uh, a human begets a human, right? That's not, that's not truly what is being taught in Jesus being begotten of the Father. Um, it is the coming forth from, but he is of the same substance. He is equal in power and glory from all eternity. He, is, he has never not been, he is not created. Um, and so therefore, um, as much as that, uh, getting our heads around that and understanding that is, is huge and kind of mind-blowing and mysterious, I think it's helpful to say um, the Father begetting and the Son being begotten is the way for us to understand the distinction between those two persons in the Trinity. Um, and to understand that um, uh, the Son was coming forth from uh, in, in that sense. But uh, again, eternal generation, there was never a time when the Son was not. Yeah. I can say a few things. The Trinity is, as John Calvin said, we have to understand the doctrine from the scripture of the is the equivalent of God. I know what you're thinking. Man, this is heavy duty. You know, we're really diving in. 
Are you talking about his ontology? Yeah, I suppose so. Because uh, uh, um, God is the Spirit. We, obviously, the, the, the Son, it, Jesus, is uh, you know, for him and for God. Do we understand the Father as being Spirit and then the third person as uh, Holy Spirit? I guess, yeah, from an ontological standpoint, like, is it? I mean, in, in his being, we have to say that all three persons, as they are equal in substance, as, as they are in every way equal and the same, that, yeah, in the, in, the, in the being of God, God is spirit. And so that's true of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three equally. Uh, we know that the Son... Um, was sent and was manifest in the flesh. And so now, um, though Christ is still in his being, he is still spirit, nothing about that changed when he took on flesh, although some have tried to um, challenge the doctrine of immutability, which means that God, the doctrine of immutability means that God doesn't change. And that's a very important doctrine to understand, too. Um, but even in Christ's being, he is still the same as he always has been. Um, he is still eternal spirit, an infinite spirit. Um, although he did take on flesh, and he still is in the flesh, right? He still has uh, a body, and we will see him uh, in that when he returns, right? Um, the spirit remains spirit, right? Um, and uh, so, um, you know, I, I, I think that when we are looking at the differences and the distinctions, I think that question 10 really just kind of helps put forth what we can understand about those distinctions, you know, and saying, Father begets, sons begotten, spirit proceeds, in a sense, right? Proceeds means sense, right? So the spirit... 
um, is sent from the Father and the Son. Uh, of course, you know, we also see spirit being referenced in different passages as the spirit of Christ. Um, we, we see, though, that um, he is, you know, a distinct person in the Godhead, though he is uh, sent from the Father and the Son to be the second comforter, right? Christ being the first. Um, so, I don't know. That's, that's as much as I've kind of gotten my head around it. When Christ became man, um, did he did he know his full mission all along, or did the Spirit reveal it to him in bits and pieces as he went along? Well, I would say that Christ knew the full mission as he is omniscient God, right? He knew the full mission from all eternity, right? This would take us back to the covenant of redemption, um, where the the covenant that uh, the persons of the Trinity entered into with each other, um, and even the important piece that Christ uh, entered into willingly and voluntarily to come and to come into to uh, be and to be made man and to die and to save his people from their sins. So, yes, absolutely, because he's known that from all eternity, uh, from before the foundation of the world. I think Paul does a good job of kind of laying out um, and, and painting that picture for us in the first chapter of Ephesians, um, among other places. So, um, yeah, I would definitely say that is true. Um, I think that maybe, um, you know, what, what you may be thinking along the lines of is, um, the the two natures, right? Yeah. In the hypostatic union, um, he was he is 100% man. He's also 100% God. But even as um, he has two natures, he also has, you know, the divine will. There's the human will uh, uh, too, right? And we know that to be true because, uh, you know, he prayed to the Father and said, "Not my will, but thine be done," right? Um, and and so uh, as also the discussions about, you know, as Christ grew as a young boy, as a child, and, and uh, grew in stature, and the passages that speak to us, speak to us about him growing in stature and knowledge, um, you know, that's speaking to his, his human nature. Uh, but, so, again, the, the, kind of like the, the doctrine of Christ being begotten, the hypostatic union, or this this uh, uh, union of Christ being the God-man, um, 100% God, 100% man, there is much that is mystery to it. But to answer your question specifically, that's a long answer to a short question. But to kind of circle around back to it, I would say, yes, absolutely. Um, he's known that mission from all eternity. Yeah. Yeah. Any other thoughts or questions? Good discussion. All right, so we're going to move on to question 12. No, I'm just playing. Uh, we're at time. Yes, Ken, real quick. Good. All right. So 
Again, if you can, if, I don't know if any of you are keeping that binder I suggested at the beginning. Um, you know, uh, we've got question 12 on the back side of question 11. If you can keep that so I don't have to print so many copies, bring it next time. That would be fantastic. If not, that's okay. I'll print some more. But um, we are going to then now, like I said at the beginning of the class, question 11 kind of wraps up now the doctrine of God proper. And now we're, we're moving into, or the divines are moving into the discussion of, okay, so we now know the word. We've now considered and studied the Trinity and the Godhead. And so now what has God done? Well, God has made decrees, even eternal decrees. And that's where the divines are going next. And question 12 is, what are the decrees of God? Um, of course, again, as, as the Westminster Standards as a whole are kind of connected and interwoven with each other, we see this similar flow in the Confession of Faith, right? Um, so Doctrine of Scripture, Chapter 1, Doctrine of God and the Trinity, Chapter 2, Chapter 3, Divine Decrees, Eternal Decrees. So we see the same flow in the larger catechism, but the, the, the answer and the questions are more detailed and diving in a little bit deeper than where the confession goes in some. So that's where we're heading to next are the decrees of God. And uh, the question 12 is actually a, a great study. So we'll look forward to that next time. Let me go ahead, go ahead and close this in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you once again, Lord, for revealing to us who you are. We thank you for all these wonderful passages in Scripture to consider your names, your attributes, your works, your worship, and how you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the ever one living and triune God, are alone to be worshipped. And oh, how wonderful it is to know that you, Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and you, Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the, uh, the wonderful uh, person in the Godhead who is at work in our hearts and in our lives, applying the work of Christ and his salvation and the benefits of our union with him to us, among other things. Lord, we, we praise you and we adore you. We do pray that you would be with us as more brothers and sisters come and gather with us to worship you in your holy name. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.